Hi, my name is Steven. Hi, I'm April. This is the Three Pi Squared ABA Business Leaders Podcast, where we discuss topics on how to create and grow an ethical and sustainable ABA practice. Together, Stephen and I owned a seven-figure ABA practice that provided both clinic and in-home services. 3Pi Squared has helped over 900 ABA practices start up and expand with our comprehensive products and services geared specifically to ABA. Now, let's get to the podcast. Something that we're always saying is that you need an accountant right away when you start your practice. You focus on the science and they can focus on the numbers. You definitely want to reach out to Margin Keepers. They are your trusted experts in ABA accounting, business consulting, and tax services. With in-depth knowledge of the applied behavior analysis field, they tailor financial statements to highlight what's vital for ABA companies to analyze, saving you time and effort. Running an ABA practice comes with unique challenges. That's where they step in, helping you identify cost-saving strategies and ensuring compliance. And when tax season rolls around, you can count on margin keepers to make sure all your tax-related boxes are checked. Compliance is key. Concentrate on the science and leave the accounting to margin keepers. Reach out today at 954-395-8107 or visit www.marginkeepers.com. All right. Hello, everyone watching on Facebook Live and then anyone listening after the fact on your podcast uh, system. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Today we have Mike and Dan from ABA on Tap. We're really excited for you guys to be here. Very excited. excited as well. Yep, jump right out of bed this morning. You guys are a little bit ahead of us. On <laughs> We're just getting started, and it's a great way to get started. So thank you so much. That's amazing. Awesome. So those of you who are listening in real time, if you have any questions, comments, anything, join our conversation and post them, and I will be keeping an eye on this. Um, yeah. So today we're going to be talking about medical necessity. And uh, as Mike and I were just kind of chit-chatting as we were getting things set up before, there's such a huge, it's just such a huge scope. Like there's so much that we can talk about in our field regarding medical necessity. Um, When when we uh, met up with with, um, ABA on tap, um, chatting to see like how we could help each other, you know, um, in this challenge of insurance and Mm -hmm. Medical necessity, all the pieces, I don't know. We, um, you know, medical necessity came up and um, as a conversation that we would like to have. So, I mean, that's, that's really, that's really what it is. So we're just going to um, kind of put the floor over to to Mike and Dan to kind of share with us their experience and kind of their journey and where where they're landing with this and what information um, that that they have um, for us. And then we're just going to have a conversation. So let's just take it from (laughs) there. Yeah, I've got a quick intro, and I, sure. and I hope it works out. I, I think Dan, that's wonderful. Dan approved. I did. I did run it by Dan, and Perfect. we were talking before we started uh, recording here about the idea that obviously medical necessity is not exclusive to, to ABA by any means. It's a broad general term. So I, I I don't know if anybody can tell here. I've got a I've got a little slight scar. I I used to have before COVID. I had a huge welt lipoma on my forehead, and unfortunately, I think it's coming back. Right. So back in February of 2020, I had a different medical provider. And they found it uh, a medical necessity to excise that lipoma from my forehead. And they did so right before things shut down. So I was very happy. 
And I've recently gone back to a new medical provider with a new insurance. And they, they weren't quite as sure that it was medically necessary to excise this large lump from my forehead. It's been a different, uh, you know, progression and journey altogether. So I kind of wanted to start with that, you know, parable of sorts in terms of the, the scope and the wide array of challenges, obstacles that we have to face as providers, especially as we try to maintain our ethic. Uh, and make sure that people are getting what they need. And that's, you know, so some people are going to find it medically necessary to excise this. And some people are going to say, no, man, you can walk around with that huge lump on your forehead and it's just fine. And I wonder if those people that would deny that uh, authorization or claim would be okay walking around with a lump on the right side of their forehead. So again, not to be critical of anybody, but that's, that's just what I think we're covering here is this idea of, well, wait a minute, man, I don't want this and I'm dealing with this and this is my experience and I'm paying you a premium to provide me with a certain service to take care of my body or my well-being, and suddenly we have certain definitions, uh, guidelines to meet. Now, as I say that, not to be critical at all, both Dan and I very much understand, I think as we all do, these are necessary parameters. Uh, we need to regulate practice uh, you know, of all sorts, certainly medical provision, so that uh, providers as well as uh, patients or clients aren't somehow misusing the system. So we get it. We're not opposed to these things. But uh, yeah, to your point, April, this, this, this is a wide expanse. This is a huge terrain. It's, uh, and and uh, I'm going to pass it over to Dan here because oddly enough, <laughs> we've only faced these constraints most recently. Yeah, uh, and before yeah. this, we were part of a, a, of a team, again, working with a sole provider here in Southern California that provided us a lot of autonomy. So we've, we've uh, been on both sides of it in terms of trying to establish and and uh, you know, prove that there's medical necessity, at least in the more recent part of our career. And then we were actually responsible for overlooking some of those things and either saying that somebody's uh, recommendations could be you know, authorized or denied based on some level of medical necessity. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, I was dealing with that as I, as I sped here to get here, I think maybe one minute late to the, the thing because I had a occupational therapy for my accident and, and my wrist surgery. And, um, you know, I was filling out because I have to request another authorization, uh, you know, like, can I open a jar? Can I wash my back? All these things. And like the numbers that I fill out on the one to 10 scale, then they submit to insurances and insurances determine the amount of more occupational therapy visits that I can get. And it's just interesting talking to my occupational therapist because they're like, well, if you're unsure, you know, err on the higher side uh, because insurances respond better to that. But if it stays high for too long, then you're not making progress. But if you make too much progress, then they don't want to have uh, you continue to get occupational therapy. Meanwhile, I'm still here not able to open up a jar, which they're trying to represent on a one through five pain scale um, to convey to an insurance that, hey, I need this surgery or this uh, this therapy. Um, so it's very interesting, you know, with all the all the levels there. How do you. How do you convey that? Um, and at the end of the day, I'm just sitting here trying to, you know, functionally live. And that's, I think, you know, relates a lot to our to our clients as well. They have these needs that the only way we can convey that is through some tangible paper report or central reach report or something like that. And then an insurance company is looking to say, well, does this individual need need the service? Still need the service? Are they making progress? Uh, what is the expected amount of progress? How do we determine that? Um, you know, meanwhile, this family's still trying to have their kid, you know, eat a certain repertoire of foods or communicate or go to the bathroom and things like that. And how can we accurately represent that to an insurance company? How can we take this living room situation um, to the funding source to say that, hey, we do need to provide ABA service to this child? Like Mike said, I think we are in a pretty unique 
situation that I, I am pretty proud of. And it's been very um, trying, I guess, for lack of a better term, even currently, um, where we we didn't really have to worry about that too much because we had a capitated contract, which was amazing. Uh, basically, what that was, was we were paid for the entire client, an X amount of money for any client that the insurance company had, uh, whether they got ABA services or not. Um, and that was so the amount of services that we were not fiscally incented to provide any more services because, you know, we got, I don't know, a dollar for every subscriber of that insurance with the assumption that a certain percentage of the subscribers of that insurance would obtain a certain amount of ABA services. And of that, there would be X amount of average hours prescribed, you know, kind of all done on the front end um, where, again, we weren't fiscally incented to provide services uh, because we were already kind of prepaid um, to going to now a fee-for-service model where what's the majority of the industry is, is, you know, build on the back end where you now do kind of have two things diametrically opposed, right? You've got the medical necessity and the designed obsolescence of how can we fade ourselves out of this service, which clinically we're supposed to do with the the fiscal motivator on the other side of more hours and more service is going to bring us more revenue. We've got these kind of things, which the whole industry is dealing with as well. Uh, so yeah, I'll pass it back to whoever wants to speak next. That was kind of a long diatribe, but I think we are in a very unique position where we can speak on both being the people that determined, for lack of better terms, medical necessity, because we had providers coming to us because we were we were outsourcing um, the clients that we could not serve. Now, also the people requesting medical necessity from, from other entities as well. So definitely a lot to say there, uh, but I'll pass it to the next person and then kind of uh, chime back in here. Just quickly, I mean, I think one variable that, that I, I want to make sure I mention, because I know all of us are, are under this particular constraint, is the idea of the reimbursement rate. So with the singular payer that we had for almost 10 years, um, you know, we, we had, I'll say it, we had the luxury of being able to, to look at the idea of medical necessity from now, the client availability, ensuring that the uh, necessary ABA uh, therapy wasn't going to be a burden either on their pocketbook or their time. Uh, and I understand that, uh, especially now in our current situation, as we transition and join with another group, um, we understand how that variable is going to affect, you know, even inadvertently, even if you don't want it to, or you don't want to think about it, it's going to affect your business model. Yep. It's going to trickle down into what you think about your recommendations. You're trying to, you're trying to take care of people on the medical services end. You're also putting food on people's tables and, and. You know, it's really hard to balance those two things out. So I, I can, you know, again, this is a huge terrain. I'm really glad we're talking about it because there are so many variables and pieces, but it comes down to sort of proving, okay, this individual has a certain diagnostic, their family, their parents, you know, assuming they're a minor, are are, uh, are facing certain challenges. How can you help? And then how do we deem those as medically necessary or not medically necessary, knowing that there's a quality of life that's being affected here? So. I mean, again, there's a lot of variables. This is probably uh, <clears throat> something we could converse about for various episodes. Yes. Uh, but we do want to unpack that. We do feel very fortunate to have had the experience we have, we've had over the past 10 years. And now we're learning a lot more about ideas like medical necessity and how they're enforced, um, you know, as a necessary parameter. But uh, knowing with some of our new partners um, how it's clearly affected their course of treatment and their treatment plans, as opposed to the way we've approached things, with a lot more autonomy. So mm -hmm. yeah, lots to be said for that. Yeah. Like that, like, you know, just piggybacking on that, like the, the entire incentive 
<laughs> apparatus is like completely opposite of 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 this right medical necessity really i mean our incentive is to keep it like the incentive not to say anyone is doing this but be honest about this too like yes. the incentive mm-hmm. is to keep a child in uh services as long as humanly possible because i have less programming to do i have less training on my text to do uh there's more consistency in hours so i can keep my staff longer right, right. and then on top of that you have the low rates and they're flat out they are low for the vast majority of providers and then the incentive there is uh, high turnover right because then my wages are less my profitability is higher so we're in this scenario where low quality uh, services that go beyond the scope that is necessary is is what we have and then we hear the complaints and the you know the anti-aba groups and they're saying that exact same thing right and yeah. it's like yeah, yeah we are in an environment where the, there is so much motivation and incentive to provide that, that of course we're going to see it. Uh, and, and I just, it's how do you get out of that? And I mean, we could talk about that, right? Forget about me- medical necessity. Because uh, I could get into that right now. I and we could I, shift this whole thing. Yeah. I uh, had like eight don't thoughts. Don't have like, this. Right. 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 We're in the middle of the ABA, ABA crisis podcast series on our podcast. I'm talking about, about that right, right now. Right. 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 Yeah. All right. yeah, I actually so, I listened to your ABA in crisis podcast a few days ago. And I was like finding myself like cool. talking to you guys. It's like, like, yes, <laughs> preach. Um, well, I, I guess I don't, I don't, this might even kind of shift things a different way, but so you guys, when we, when I started, when we started our private practice, you know, over 10 years ago was before insurance mandates. And so, and I have been in practice for years before that, you know, when things looked a lot differently. Um, but one of the things when we built our practice, we had like some county funding, we had other, you know, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't the same as private insurance funding or Medicaid or anything like that. So we really had, um, we had less guidelines. I I mean, that could be, that could be bad in some occasions, but like we were able to make our assessment period as long as we needed to, we were able to use whatever measurements that we needed to, you know, of course we used, you know, what we felt was ethical and research-based and all, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Um, But we were just bound by our, like the board and our regulations that we had by the board. And that was the end. Right. And so we were able to do things a lot differently. And then as um, insurance um, mandates came on in Virginia and we started getting funding and we were excited about working with, you know, having more, um, allowing more kids opportunity to access services and, and whatnot. But then we started to slowly had to start doing things differently. We had to start doing things by the guidelines that they had. And so we have a little taste of what that was like, um, you know, like 12 years ago or whatnot. Um, but for you guys in, you know, fresh in this transition, what are you finding is probably like the biggest change or the biggest difference or the, the thing that you're really having to, um, wrap your head around and pivot the most, like, changing from yeah. the old way to, to the new way, let's say. Yeah, it's funny yeah, that you bring that up, too, the, um, that, the change that, from, because <laughs> uh, Mike and I went back two companies ago, 
uh, to our my original place of employment. And I think that was 2013 when the insurance mandate came to California. Um, and originally, ABA had to be supervised by an occupational therapist or a nurse practitioner because those were the only licensed people, uh, again, going into medical necessity, right? Insurance companies saying, well, you have to have somebody licensed with a BCBA, BACB uh, slash BCBAs. They're not licensed, they're certified. So we would have we would have like occupational therapists. Fortunately, at our company, we had one. Uh, they had no idea what we were doing. Um, and nurse practitioners didn't really know what the ABA would think. But because insurance were saying, based on the medical necessity and the hierarchy of how it works, you need a licensed individual to supervise these programs. It was it was very interesting. So just when you when you brought that transition up, that sends me back into. Um, I know North Carolina. I think it's even still right that you have to have a. I think they might have just switched. Did that. they just switch yeah, it, or they so. have to have, have a psychologist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that they ended that. Yeah. Well, not every state has provision for licensure for us, right? So California certainly doesn't, and they don't seem in any hurry to get that for us. They really put that on the table. But anyway, back to yeah. the uh, to our transition here, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> no worries. I did make a. Uh, oh, were you going to say something, Mike? No, no, go ahead. Back to our transition. So back to- I, I made a couple notes of like the the challenges as as you were chatting. I think one of them is the, um, the, so the medical necessity, one of the challenges that we're seeing, and we're not really fully, fully into it yet. We're just kind of on the, on the outskirts as we're um, credentialing with some of the other insurances um, is that, you know, the, it's very important that based on the medical necessity focuses on the core deficits of individuals with autism. Um, but that that can be very broad. Um, so, you know, it's typically going to be communication, social, some insurances seem to allow for more self-help skills than others. A lot of them kind of stay away from the vocational and then behavioral um, deficits. And what we've heard from one of the insurances at uh, our current company is they actually ran into an audit issue where they were working on attending, which is a totally okay behavioral deficit um, that is totally approved by this insurance company. And they were working on attending through what was functional for that kid, homework. Um, and they wrote the word homework in a medical note and they failed audits and had to repay um, a substantial amount because that was a specific exclusionary criterion. Yet they were working on the attending skill. So, yeah, we could work on attending through a lot of things, but we want to work on it through what's functional. And for that kid, it, they were not targeting the individual's ability. I don't know what homework they're working on, but I can assure you they weren't targeting like their you know, ability to run common core math. They're working on their ability to attend to it. Through homework, the funding source saw the word homework in a medical note, said that's exclusionary, that's not medically necessitated, failed the audit. So things like that now, and then through that, and us just being with this company, um, you know, and learning the ropes through a little bit of time, there's a lot of fear um, through what we're working on, failing an audit, and now it's almost like a culture of fear, whereas previously, uh, there's a lot of fluidity. We could work on again, within reason, um, a lot of different things. And if we needed to ramp up services, maybe the child had a um, a behavior or something happened that we needed to go provide a lot of services. Well, we could do that. We wouldn't have to wait for it to request an authorization or submit an addendum, which takes time. Through all of these things now, we're in the, all of the minutia of like insurance processing. While we're not able to provide the level of service that we want to provide, because we're waiting for to get authorizations approved and things like that. So it's kind of, I guess my answer would be two things is to answer your question. The two things, the biggest challenges are 
It's almost like a culture of fear of, I really think I want to work on this, but I don't know if it's going to get approved. And I can ask the insurance company and I can request the hours and that's going to take time, even if it does get approved. And if it doesn't get approved, now I've got a lot. Now I can't work on a skill that I deem personally as a clinician to be medically necessary. Um, so that culture of fear mixed with the lack of ability to adjust on the fly for a ever-changing client, because we're working, like Mike said, from the lab to the living room, we're working in their living room and things change quickly. And oftentimes we're not able to respond to that. That would be my two, uh, two answers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that so much. Um, I, you know, I never thought about it as a culture of fear. That's, that's, yes. that's brilliant. Totally. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, we had, um, I think the words pairing, uh, we had the words rapport building. We had the words, um, uh, watched, uh, I think the observed. phrase observe, observed yeah. peer and client, uh, turn taking for candy land, like, like these like peace words. So our list of words to not include in the oh, wow, notes wow, wow. and <laughs> what to say instead became part of the training for our techs and our clinicians, like our, our BCBAs. Like we, yes. because we, I mean, now luckily we had, we hired some expensive attorneys and we, um, you know, we still ended up paying a lot of money, but not to the insurance companies, yes. you know, for the audit, but, um, yeah, I think we, one of the audits was uh, they they wanted two hundred dollars back and we spent two thousand uh, dollars with our attorney so that we didn't have to pay that money. And, and it, it was just principle, point. right? Like, I, I'm right not right. paying back something that I know that we did correctly. Yeah, uh, it, it's just it's. But again, it goes back to that. Where where are the incentives? Right. And mm -hmm. it's like if you're. If, if even 20% of your supervision of your text is coming up with the right words to say on a session note, that's 20% of your supervision that you are no longer spending on actually helping the kids, right? And it's just, what are we doing Well, here? we had to shift gears to teach. Now we're all, you know, we're about, uh, in, in our private practice, we were all about, you know, continuing education and you know, growing and learning and all of that. But we had to start shifting the gear with like report writing and assessments and treatment plans to how to write it based on medical necessity. And I'm sure, you know, doctors and, you know, we're not the only, I'm not saying, oh no, it's, it's we have to do this now. <laughs> but, but it's the fact of how, of how we're having to do it. And it's, you know, Stephen and I were talking the other day, we, we talk about this a good bit, but like that education versus medical, you know, like, mm -hmm. the, you know, should, should we be in the medical field or should we be in the educational field? But it's yep, like, yep. I feel like we have to pick one or the other one really, why can't it kind of merge together? Because it's kind of, it's, it's connected. Yeah, right? And it seems like the payers are picking and choosing, right? So whatever is to their advantage, that's the field we're not in. Right. And, yep. and so <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's just, yeah. It's, right. It's, if it's, it's working on homework, that should be in their IEP. Yes. If it's tying their shoes, that should be the occupational therapist. Correct, yeah. If it's, you know, expanding, um, you know, food repertoire, that should be a, a feeding therapy. You know, when we all know that we could stay in our lane, but a lot of these areas, we have every right and all the knowledge to, to, to be working on. So. And then everybody talks about collaborative treatment, right? As though it's something you're supposed to do, but hey, we're going to deny it if <laughs> it looks too collaborative. 
make sure you're not doing their work. Just collaborate without doing any of the things that are important to somebody else, right? It's a collaborative treatment. I, I really love that phrase. It's one of those fancy terms that, again, can kind of get lost in the weeds. It, it, it is, speaks to everybody's better intent. It's awesome. It's a great idea. But to your point, Steve, uh, I think that's our biggest concern with what we're seeing in this transition uh, from the fiscal or the administrative part is that a lot of these processes seem to be exclusionary. They're not looking to help. They're not looking to verify that everything's okay. They're looking to deny you payment somehow. And then, yes, to, to Dan's words, and I, I know it resonated with April, it, it creates a culture of fear that trickles all the way down to how you're writing goals, how you're conceptualizing program. Suddenly, that process in your head, as you do this assessment, is telling you already what your treatment plan is going to look like because you want to get it approved. You're not necessarily you know, observing in the moment. You're thinking about how am I going to make this fit in? And you know, unfortunately, it, it's, it becomes one of those tasks before the earlier in my career, before the past 10 years, report writing was abysmal. It was like torture for me because it made no sense. It was this weird process of trying to make sure that the words were right, uh, to make sure that it got approved so that I could actually do the things that I knew I was seeing in the home that were necessary. And those two things didn't often match up, but you were playing this sort of duality, this weird, you know, uh, two-faced kind of thing. And I think that's what concerns us here is we're, and we are working with this new group and, and we're very grateful to them because I think they're recognizing a lot of these things. It, it's hard to be in the game and to feel successful and then maybe have somebody on the outside come in and say, hey, we haven't had to deal with this. Or, you know, I think it's affecting you in this and this way. Uh, so I think everybody's up for the task of trying to unify and make those systems um, a little bit more cohesive to so make sure that, that the treatment plan is exactly what it is based on the necessity that you've observed in vivo and not somebody you know, somewhere else on a computer who's you know, and again, not putting blame on anybody who, who unfortunately might be on a track and might be incented in their work to find the exclusion, to find the way to tell you no, and then slows things down for everybody else. And, you know, from a fiscal perspective, it makes sense. If you're holding a certain amount of money in your bank account for 30, 60, 90 days, and it's a substantial chunk. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a businessman, but I know that interest accrues and, uh, and money is made that way. So, you know, again, I don't blame anybody until it, I'm sitting in somebody's home and I'm going, oh man, this process just stinks. I, I, I could do so much. I could offer so much help. And right now um, I can't based on these, you know, obstacles. So. And what runs exactly kind of inversely proportional to what you're saying is innovation. And that's something we've been able to do. And we're extremely proud of, you know, we've been, able, our podcast oh, was built on that, looking at like, okay, like uh, Steve mentioned earlier, um, you know, the ABA detractors and looking at some of the legitimate claims that they do have and some of the humanitarian pieces and stuff like that. How can we make it more humane? Well, when when you're so focused on the documentation piece and so focused on not failing an audit, once you get a formula that works, that's what you stick to. And that's that's one of the issues that we're actually running into right now is we want to innovate. But it's really hard because innovation runs the risk of a failed audit. And that's the last thing people want to run into is getting that failed audit. So it's like, don't, don't, this works, this works. We got this documentation that works. We got this session that works. We got these programs that work. Just, just, just kind of do, do that uh, because <laughs> that, that'll get us past the audit. Yeah. And then again, we, you know, our new partners, we credit them a ton because they found these cool ways to navigate. They've got a great staff that very, very client oriented. Uh, they've certainly done their best to move away from super traditional uh, approaches that are facing high criticism right now with good reason in, 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 you know, in many ways. Uh, but again, it comes down to that idea of medical necessity, the template of the report, 
that idea that I got to keep the wheels rolling. So I'm not going to try to put a different spoke in this wheel that might throw things off balance. And then suddenly a client or our payment or, you know, all the way over to our payroll or somebody's hours are now being compromised. And it really has a large, you know, uh, cascading effect all across, you know, from payroll to how you hire, to how you train, to how you're writing your notes, to when you're cutting session time to make sure that they have ample time to do the documentation, how much of the data is actually now being used as documentation, whether or not it's necessary. Uh, it really gets into this, you know, much more perfunctory task. And um, yeah, it, it, it has been a challenge, but again, we're, we're hopeful um, and we're looking for, for ways to unify that process a little bit more. So it makes sense across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, we, I just urge everyone listening today to go and listen to AV on taps last podcast oh, was AVA in crisis. I believe that was the title yeah. of it. Um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I, you know, because there, there are a lot of things that I want to bring up. Um, but you know, you guys talked about it already and, and you said it so well, you know, looking at like, you know, um, codes and the reimbursement rates and the, you know, staffing and how to be able to support your staff. And like, so anyways, I, I don't know how much of that that we want to rehash today because I feel like you guys, like I said, a minute ago, you guys did a really great job, but yeah. it, that's another, um, it, just more information right out there. And, and I think that the more that we are all talking about this, um, it, it yeah. just helps. So, um, so as far as like looking at medical necessity, um, Say, like, if you can define medical necessity, like, in just, just like a quick, like, elevate, elevator pitch for medical necessity, um, what would that be? I, 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 would, I would go the route of, and I think this is something that I did want to bring up in our conversation, um, I would try to find a stronger parallel between what is meant for medical necessity and what we in applied behavior analysis look at as social significance. And I think that there's a great deal of crossover between those two that needs to be explored. Going back to my example with my lipoma, um, does it have to cause me physical pain? Does it have to somehow, you know, uh, completely limit my life? Or can it just be an obstruction? Uh, and overall, hey, medically, we can do something for you to remove that and enjoy and improve your overall quality of life somehow, even if it's something that could be seen as cosmetic or superficial. So I think there's a social significance piece that would be very important to align with the idea of medical necessity here. Um, and that's, I mean, so I, without defining it and not necessarily answering the question, I'm going to, I'm going to see if Dan can help me there, but that's what <laughs> I would say is I think that there's got to be a greater alignment between those two terms, those two key phrases, uh, at least with respect to ABA. And I think that there's, again, is there a medical procedure for medical necessity? Is there something that is affecting somebody's quality of life? And is there a medical procedure that could easily and safely address that? Uh, that's where I would want to start. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I'll just go with that one. I like that elevator pitch more than the technical, <laughs> technical terms. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're um, talking about social significance. Um, what do you think about like the developmental appropriateness along with that? Because, you know, I, it, we've had some maybe uh, funders who denied us doing like maybe potty training because uh, the, on a three-year-old, because a 
normally like it's typical to be doing potty training for a three-year-old so that's not outside of the scope like that's not autism is not showing up there um now if it were an eight-year-old and we were working on potty training it would be more likely to be checked off um and, and so you know there's a big developmental you know significance of that too not you know, maybe they weren't necessarily delayed in that moment. So like at what point does that social significance and then that developmental piece play in, whether they're on kind of on track um, for their learning or whether whether it is delayed learning, you know, and, and, and what all that looks like with our goal creation, you know? Um, I, I love that question. Um, and I, you're, you're in my wheelhouse here in terms of, of uh, early childhood, which is, you know, my, my specialty and my, my content expertise, especially the early intervention. Um, and I would say that, that uh, I'm trying to give a broad answer here and then get to some details, but I would say that potty training at the three-year-old is very socially significant and right in range. Uh, toward, toward the medical, medical necessity, necessity part, part of it, does it, it need to be completely out of range and now abnormal uh, for an eight-year-old for it to be medically necessary or is it medically necessary as well for a three-year-old to be potty trained on time? Which I would say yes to both questions. Uh, but I love that question you're asking because that's what happens here. And saying, well, wait a minute. No, they don't have to be potty trained until, you know, the range would say that for a boy, even later into fours or fives from a developmental scale. So until it becomes a problem and they're soiling their pants at school and their friends are making fun of them, let's not help those people. Let's just make sure that they are real crisis and a real need before it becomes medically necessary. Because God forbid that it's medically necessary to prevent and or keep somebody within range. Right. And I, I'm being a little you know, facetious there, but I think that's my honest answer is that that is the problem. And I don't blame anybody at a, you know insurance uh, company who has to sort through this. I don't envy their job at all. What a what a tough task to have to to say yes to that person and no to that person based on this you know, document that I'm reading in front of me and this checklist on my second screen that I'm trying to match up because we've enforced this template so much. But yeah, you know, that's what I would say. And even in my early intervention, I'll have a lot of um, parents come to me and say, oh, we'd like to start potty training. And I'll say, okay, great. Are they, remind me, oh, you know what? They're not really managing their garments. They're taking off their pants or pulling them up so much, right? Yeah, they're not. Are they coming to you to let you know that they need to be changed? Uh, yeah, sometimes, okay. Now tell me, in the morning when they wake up, are they dry or are they soaked? They're soaked. Is the diaper cold or a bit warm? It's usually soaked and cold. Okay, that tells me that there might not be a whole lot of readiness here. So yes, we can start sitting them. Yes, I can start telling you to do some observational learning, to bring them into the bathroom with you, despite you know within your comfort for your family and culture, and start demonstrating those things to them. But the idea that we're going to potty train at this point developmentally, I'm going to tell you that I don't think you're ready. Now, we'll start doing some of the other pieces. I've got a near three-year-old, and she's doing great with potty training, but physiologically and anatomically, I know she's still getting wet at night. So we know we're not going to finish that. You know, At what point does that delay or any of it become medically necessary? Well, when it impacts my life or her life in a way that is now going to lead to other detriments. But I do think we have a general medical culture, and this could be a whole other conversation even outside of ABA. Um, but the idea that we we often have to wait for there to be a serious referable problem to a specialty before we address it. And uh, something that we'd love to talk about in the future is this um, some project I'm working on um, that I feel very fortunate to have the support to work on is this notion of behavioral pediatrics, which falls right into this. 
this notion that there's a list of routine behavior problems that end up in pediatricians' offices. 30 to 50% is the estimate, as, as little as 30%, as many as 50% of uh, people in the waiting room at pediatricians' offices are there for behavioral reasons. And the pediatrician's got 15 to 20 minutes to talk about these things. They don't have the content expertise. With all due respect, they shouldn't. They're medically trained. They should have other content expertise. And there's no way that's going to fit into their consultation model. So we could fit in perfectly to that. Now, the medical model would tell you, well, wait, no, there's no problem yet. They're still three. And yes, they seem to be so they're, they're not potty training well. Um, from a developmental range perspective, there's a good percentage of kids that actually have uh, you know, enuresis, daytime enuresis up until they're in middle school. So that's completely normal. Okay. Do you think those people, those kids are enduring some grief because of that? Do, do we really have to make them go through that? Is there any other mental health issue that might arise from being tortured until you were in seventh grade because you peed your pants at school? Again, without putting a, you know, a strong blame on anybody, it is our tendency from an insurance perspective to wait until the crisis occurs. The idea of ABA from a primary care perspective, you know, no, that doesn't fit. We're not going to prevent anything. We have to wait until it's a problem, uh, until it's something diagnosable. So gave you a lot more than I expected to give you there. <laughs> I hope it was okay. But right, and there's a lot of pieces to unpack here. Um, but I think that's the biggest part. And I, and I don't envy anybody who's having to, to look at these and review these reports for us. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know how they're defining that. But it would be a great conversation to have with um, more of these people behind closed doors, the insurance people that make these decisions that are doing these calculations, because, you know, at the end of the day, yes, they're business people, but you, I, I, I guess they have, you know, I, I venture to guess they also have children, their parents, they have families, they, they understand grief and hardship. And, um, but a lot of this, these messages may not be reaching them when you're just looking at it from a numbers perspective. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, 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 that's perfect. We, um, and, and like you said, I, I also don't, envy the people doing the job, you know, absolutely <laughs> not at all. No, no, thanks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of, there is like a lot to that preventative piece. Um, because we, we've seen that in our private practice a lot over the last, you know, like really fighting with having Peer, you know, asking for peer reviews uh, to be able to explain further or to be able to find other assessments to try to back up, you know, like, try, you know, finding all the pieces to help get what we need to get, you know, or figuring out how to attach the situation or, you know, kind of attack it from a different angle, kind of come in in a different way, you know? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I do right. think that that's a, that that's a really big, I yeah. think that becomes, yeah, I think okay. that becomes the answer for a lot of people in terms of um, let's make sure that the paperwork gets approved, and then knowing that there's no oversight otherwise, you know, we get to practice how we want. Um, I, you know, I, I, having done that for a little while in my career, there is a again, there's a duality, there's a weird dichotomy that gets created because you're you're not necessarily aligning those systems. So it would be so much more comfortable and so much more ideal to just be able to tell that insurance provider, provider, hey. This is what we're doing. I am a certificated professional. Look at my history with you if we have one. And, um, you know, let's build a little trust here that I'm not taking advantage of your service provision. Uh, I don't know. Check in with the consumer and see what, <laughs> you know, one of those uh, rating scales that Dan was talking about. Maybe give them a call and see how they feel about the services. See if you're missing something. 
can there be a better level of quality assurance and these checklists that have been created? And then these broad terms of medical necessity, which we haven't talked about this, and I don't know too much about this. Uh, Stephen, April, you guys have probably seen a lot more than, than we have, but just the variability from insurance company to insurance company and how they define these things and how they put these parameters in place. And again, uh, you know, with our current partners, we see that they did the logical, very smart thing. They took the most stringent of those definitions uh, for their documentation, and they created uh, templates and models after that, knowing that every other service uh, or every other insurance company and payer would accept that if we meet the most stringent standard. Um, I won't mention who that is. You guys probably know who I'm talking about. But yeah, I mean, the idea that now we, we need to allot you know, 15, 20 minutes of the session time that could be direct with the client just to prove to you, payer, that we did the service in a way that you want us to prove on paper, knowing that that paper only goes so far, right? So this oversight that you're trying to impose, which is very necessary and very logical, and we understand that, is is not only failing, but it's probably constraining us in a way that that is uh, a detriment to the consumer. So that you know that's hard. Again, that that's I painted a very abysmal picture there. I think that there's a lot of very uh, kind-hearted, very uh, hardworking people in our field that find their way around that and that do marvelous things within people's homes and the community and that really help individuals that want that help. Um, and there's certainly a lot of other people that that we know of that are colleagues that struggle with that and that unfortunately do things that, you know, start compromising the ethic a little bit, that really start creating a lot of internal conflict and strife. So don't want anybody help trying to help people in that condition, you know, <laughs> you got to, you're going to help people. You got to be in, in a good spot yourself. I was looking um, <clears throat> back at um, when you were talking about the collaboration piece, because I do think ABA is still trying to figure out, you know, we're still fairly new. 2013 is when we really took off here in California for the insurance mandate. We've been uh, a resource for regional centers here for a bit longer than that, but we're still in our infancy and trying to figure out exactly where we fit in. So um, I, I want to make sure that we don't sound like, you know, like completely against medical necessity because that's, Absolutely. you know, I'm not saying we should be. Thanks for saving be, me, Dan. But we did talk about earlier um, how a lot of times they do defer, you know, like, oh, well, if you're having an issue with eating, see a feeding therapist. If you have an issue with, um, you know, any gross motor skills, see an occupational therapist. And absolutely. Um, that's the case we talked about in our episode on November and December in 2021, Collaborative Treatment Part 1 and Part 2, mm. um, which I do think is an interesting discussion about where ABA actually fits in because ABA is monitoring behavior or modifying behavior. And at the end of the day, everything is behavior, right? Eating is behavior. All of it is behavior. So in some way, we are uniquely qualified to work with this. And in some ways, maybe it is overarching. So I do think that medical necessity piece is important. That being stated, when we're talking about the collaboration, it can be challenging to tell parents, okay, well, you need to see six different specialists in your already, you know, really densely packed week uh, to work on all of these things. And as we want you to collaborate, we're not going to pay you any collaboration time is on the ABA side of things because it all has to be face-to-face -face and direct. So we're not going to pay for that. Um, and, you know, if we talk about those might be some of the excluded words, um, you know, observed uh, the food therapist or collaborated with the food therapist, those might be excluded words as well. So we run into that. So yes, it would be great to collaborate. I just don't know how logistically feasible that is for a lot of the families that we work with. 
um, and then how fiscally feasible it is. Then moving into the last thing you said a little while ago, um, Stephen, uh, when we were talking about the rates, that um, you know our, our rates being kind of kind of low, when being that we're not given indirect time to do a lot of this documentation, the more that we have to document to prove this medical necessity. Again, not saying that we shouldn't document it, but the more that we have to document, the more we have to review these documents uh, to make sure that we're not putting an excluded word, not at the state, um, not to say that, hey, we want to um, rewrite the documentation, but to say, hey, like you are focusing on attending, not homework, just, just change that word. Um, then a lot of times we have to do this because we don't get the indirect time when we're actually with the client, which now cuts into the service time, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of one or the other. So now we're saying, okay, well, the last 20 minutes of session is this, this big documentation. Um, that's 20 minutes that we could have been working with the client, but now we have to be spending that all documenting versus either working with the client or if the rates allowed us to do that on an indirect uh, accord, then we'd be able to really focus a little bit more on that documentation piece. So we're kind of getting squeezed on both ends, right? We need more documentation, less indirect time. There's only so much time. So a lot of it has to come out with the direct time of the clients. And, you know, like Mike's talked about, we've talked about a lot, which <clears throat> we've run into a lot of roadblocks and gotten past them, especially with our previous provider. You can't be taking notes and working with the client at the same time. It's oh. one or the other. And this is just even with the data taking, um, so, so much of it becomes less teaching, more documentation, um, at the expense of the client, which at the end of the day is what we're so focused on. Yeah. And then the other piece to that, just to make matters worse, um, is that most funders don't allow you to bill for the data, right. For the session note, like you got to do that out, outside of billing. That's you're not direct. You're not providing direct service right now. Why, why would would we allow you to bill for that right and so it's like we you are required to fill out this to justify the session taking place but it, it's it's an unbillable service it's just it's it's really difficult um i don't know if we want to switch gears but i i just have a curious question about medical necessity when it comes to wanting to meet the parents needs when maybe they don't match with the child's needs you know at, at coming at it from a provider like okay mom and dad or you know even that piece where mom and dad may not agree right because I, i'm sure that that happens quite often uh but because yeah. uh, we don't agree on very much so i can't I, I i would assume that that works for everybody uh, and, and but you know just dealing with that because obviously you know the client in some instances may not be able to um, uh, communicate as well as they would like to get what they need and then you have parents that may be motivated by a different thing um than um than you would deem medically necessary. So like navigating that piece of it, um, any thoughts on that? That's a fantastic what? question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm gonna say one thing quickly and then I know that, that I saw Dan and April already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always found, um, so I've always found ABA as a medical provision very interesting in many ways. One way in particular being that there's Ideally, that there's one individual that has the diagnosis 
but there's a whole social system around that individual that should be receiving the treatment. So seldom do you, you know, it says a cancer patient, they're going to get chemo. It's not like, oh, this child has cancer. Uh, mom, you're going to sit down and get chemo. And so is this child, although in many ways, metaphorically, that's what the parent has to go through. But that's what I would say immediately is that there's, there is a lack of understanding there with the way these things are excluded or included in terms of service provision. Um, I would go as far as saying that, that you could probably do effective treatment exclusively through parent education mm -hmm. in a lot of these cases and not necessarily need direct services, but I'll leave it at that because I know you guys have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead, April. Oh, you you go to, for uh, it. Yeah. People hear, <laughs> no, hear me on here all the time. It's your turn to talk. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, that's, that's very, very challenging. Um, yeah. That's, and that's, that's where we, we run into the issue of the lab versus the living room and standardized assessments and, and things like that. And, and even school, like my girlfriend's a principal with school as well. And, um, you know, I'll have some some families that I work with, they'll hear about, you know, transitioning to a new school and they'll say, well, this school's like, you know, it has a terrible rating, but how do you really rate it? It's rated on standardized assessments, right? So that's what a lot of the medical necessity is. How do we look at a Vineland score and look at these, you know, eight dimensions and look at the success based on that, where the parents saying that they have an issue um, with, with something else. I, I wish I could give like a specific, specific like answer to that. That one is tough. So parents saying that they want to work on something which isn't, um, isn't defined by, by medical necessity. That's, man, that's that's challenging. I I don't because know that ultimately like, like the, the the program is the ultimate success of the program depends on the parents, right? Like I I think we can all agree Absolutely. that parents need to be yeah. involved. They have to be involved, and so if. If we can't get their buy-in, um, that would make it tremendously difficult, I think, for for skills to generalize and you know to to kind of fade out and transition services. Where that, well, that's that fluid. So I've been running parent groups for essentially since I've been at this this previous company, so almost ten years, and they've gone through many iteration, iterations, and we've learned as much from the parents as they've learned from us. In my current iteration, I spend the first week. Um, just talking about resources in the community, uh, resources to regional center, like school, things like that, because these parents are so overwhelmed, they're not ready for ABA. We can come in with the best strategies in the world, but if they're just super stressed out, they don't know that they can get, you know, respite services. They don't know um, a lot of different things that are out there that they can take their kid to soccer and things like that. Then they're not ready for ABA. So we found with our current iteration that like going over some of these things, like, hey, there's a lot of resources, take a deep breath. Even having other parents that have, if there's a parent in the parent group that's had ABA for a little while saying like, hey, it's going to be okay. Like that is so valuable to these parents that I've seen personally, again, it's kind of anecdotally, uh, but I can only see what I've seen that. I've seen a better implementation of the ABA strategies if we come to it from that regard, because they're more receptive, more ready to learn than if we just come in and we're like, this is what ABA is, this is what you need to do. They're like eight levels away from ready to learn that. And even, you know, sometimes Mike joins as well. And we'll have parents that talk about, well, my, you know, my husband wants to do it differently. And it, it frustrates me when he, he doesn't listen to the way I talk about uh, the way that you tell me to do it. And it's like, well, Maybe sometimes it's okay if people do it differently because right. having a cohesive family unit, even if they're not doing the ABA strategies the exact way that we want to do it, is probably better than having a family unit that's trying to butt heads all day and goes to bed frustrated while mom's like, well, this is the exact way the ABA wanted to talk about it. 
or the ABA wanted to implement it. So I guess talking about what you've uh, brought up there, um, Stephen, that I found that, but yeah, like an insurance company might look at that and be like, no, it's not medically necessary to talk about the resources that they have. They should do that on their own accord. But yes, but if if our goal is designed obsolescence, we can get you to that end goal much quicker um, by giving them the resources and things like that. But if they were to look at it, I'm sure there would be some exclusionary terms or things that we talked about there in in our parent groups that certainly benefit the client and get us to our goal quicker, but might run the risk of not being medically necessary. Yeah, I, I it, it's a tough one because that's my current passion is, um, you know, that's something that I'm working on starting another business here soon <laughs> on parent coaching and, and helping um, agencies, helping clinicians to know how to better support families and, and, and how to support, you know, the parents, the caregivers. Um, you know, and one of my things would be sitting down and discussing the family values, asking questions about their family culture, figuring out like, you know, asking a lot of curiosity questions to find out why these specific things are a thing. You know, um, one parent years ago came to me and her biggest thing was my child is humming in the car. I need him to, it's like, he's self-stimming, he needs to stop that. Um, well, okay, let's talk about that. Why is that not okay? You know, and it turned out it was it was upsetting her. And so we worked on, and this was years and years ago before it was insurance was a thing, but like, you know, we worked on, okay, well, what can you do in that moment? Because it's really okay if your child is humming in the car. Like I hum when I'm driving down the road, I feel a little bit taking this personal, but, you know, <laughs> but no, but like being able to, Steven, how do you feel? About yeah. That? How do you feel? I'm yeah. okay with it. He's got, I, I, I he, put earbuds in. I'm he's got my, he's got me and my son, like humming our own songs and, and, and he's learned how to tune us out, but, you know, teaching those strategies to the parents of, you know, self-regulation and, and, you know, being able to be where they need to be to then provide for their kids what they right. need to provide. So then, you, you know, so you're looking at those parent skills, which yes, in the last couple of years of our agency, we really kind of got crafty with how we were able to build some of that within the parent goals, but we still had to be, you know, careful in how we did that to make sure that we're, you know, that we're in line with what we're, we're supposed to be doing, but, and, um, providing the behavioral treatment to the person we're supposed to be though, there are those parent goals. And so how do you link that together? Because you're absolutely right. Well, uh, if, if the parents, if the family, if that unit is not there and, and they're not ready and they don't have the skills necessary, then it, you're not going to get that optim, optimum outcome. We, in fact, we have a BCBA uh, business owner panel coming up this month. And one of the things we're going to, our main topic that we're going to talk about is um, recommended hours. Um, you know, do you go off of your, um, uh, your recommended, you know, clinically, your clinical recommendation after assessment of how many hours this child needs, um, and or do you, you know, factor in what insurance says that you need, <laughs> and like, okay, well, maybe I child's should availability. stay underneath a certain amount of hours so it doesn't have to kick to peer peer review and take right. longer to get it um, authorized. Do we look at the family's availability? Do we look at the family's like complete bandwidth of what they can do? You know, maybe coming in and doing. 
two to four hours a week um, and focusing on one, you know, focused treatment might be the best start, you know, not necessarily coming in full blast, but anyways, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging. Like how, how do you, because it is, it is, we are, especially in the field of early intervention and kids under 18, we are, you know, it's, it's, we're treating the family, we're providing services yeah. for the family um, or for that, you know, that home unit. So yes. yeah, that's, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm working on it behind the scenes. <laughs> I remember specifically, um, there was a client that Mike Mike had uh, back at the previous company, uh, and they um, they were from a different culture, an Eastern Asian culture, and they were really focused on getting this child, uh, getting their child to uh, like sit at the table and do work. And this was a child that was non um, non vocal and didn't really have any interaction with the parents or others. And we were more focused on, hey, like, let's have this child learn some communication, learn some games, things like that. Um, and we just butted heads for like a year. We didn't really have a lot of success for like a year because they just really that wasn't motivating for them. But, you know, because of our assessments, our core deficits, right, the social skills, the communication skills, that's what we really needed to focus on. And that's you know what we thought we needed to focus on. And just for years, they just didn't they didn't see a value until my talk, my daughter really is able to be like an active member of the house. That was their priority. Um, and we just constantly like, you need, let's work on in session. We're going to sit down and play games and let's work on the communication and just very, very little dot by. And again, Mike, I think consulted on this case. He can probably provide more direct um, input, but uh, I can kind of on the outside consult it and just like week after week, these therapists would come in and yeah, it's just not working, not working. And finally, we were like, all right, let's just get them to do what, let's just get this child to do what this family wants them to do. So even though she's not really communicating well, even though she's not really hitting these social skills, let's have this child work on the chores, like house contributorship, and work on sitting and attending. And after we were able to do that, even it's even though it's not their trajectory or the, the way that we would have gone about it, or even the way an insurance company would probably want us to do it, Finally, this family was able to engage with the child through the things they wanted her to do. And eventually we were able to, okay, so look, she's sitting and attending. She's doing these chores. Now can we play games and work on these skills? So just that, that I always remember that specific case because it was a culture so different from ours um, and so different from the medical necessity way of doing it, um, that we were able to kind of bond with the parents and get it done through that. Yeah. I think it goes back to, I mean, we also, back to the original question that, that you posed, Steve, I think, you know, depending on your ethic, you end up doing a lot of those things off the record, too, you know, so knowing that it might give you some pushback, I think most people just end up spending time, and that's a little harder to keep track of, because you're not actively taking notes, or maybe you're, you know, doing it off to the side, but I think that's what ends up happening, is, is you know, knowing that you don't want any kickback or pushback from the authorization of the payer, um, I think most people with a good ethic are going to end up helping the family or talking to the parents sort of off the record, if you will. And then, you know, to our, it benefits the program in general from a collateral perspective, usually to Dan's point and saying, okay, maybe we disagree. We're not listening. We have our own professional ethic here, our recommendation, but you, we're not getting your buy-in as a family system. So, okay, let's get your buy-in. Uh, what you're asking us to do isn't completely unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. We just wouldn't go about it this way developmentally. And then, yeah, I think you know, to Dan's bigger point there, it's, it's about creating a reinforcement structure or dynamic between the child and parent within appropriate limits. 
so that the parent is able to look at the child as capable, as, as able of uh, emitting behaviors that uh, are of interest, that are going to evoke uh, good responses from the parent and make that a reciprocal interaction over time. Uh, but yeah, that's a really good question you posed at the beginning there, because I do know there's a lot of challenges um, and, and something we've even talked about with our, you know, with our newer partners right now and saying we, we can't necessarily just, uh, core deficits or medical necessity is not defined by the parent right. desires right. at all. Right. <laughs> but to your, you know, or sometimes there's overlap there, sure. but usually there isn't. And we're having to find a way to, to address the parent, to let them know that the service is there to help them in an overall picture, knowing that we also have these uh, parameters, if not constraints, that we're adhering to, to ensure continuity of care. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, and again, you guys have really uh, helped us elaborate on this really well, because it's this big, vague term medical necessity yeah. that varies from pair to pair, but it trickles down to so many things yeah. uh, down to, you know, your basic interaction in somebody's living room and, and what you think you can or can't help them with, or what you can or can't document as you help them. Yeah. It, it's got such an influence. And like, you, you like, you know, regardless of what you have to write in the treatment plan to get it approved, right? It's, it goes way beyond that. And it should, unfortunately, again, unfortunately, <laughs> it, it's a great idea. Like it, it, it's, it's something that is valuable if it's, if the intention is good, but like, it's just, it seems that it's just a way to put a roadblock in place to, to decrease the number of hours that that are provided uh, and then the the only person losing well the family loses out and yeah, for sure. and and I guess like we we have officially hit the hour yeah I was I was oops. before you started talking yeah. I had a, I had an idea of transitioning out but because yeah. like we could do a part two on this yeah, right like like even but just I just want to interrupt you yeah, though like I it. hear you say that like Oh, someone's like doing this with ill intent. Like they're putting, like the insurance is putting a roadblock in for us being able to. I don't feel that way a hundred percent. I maybe as a you know, like I just want to say that like, but no, I I I, mean, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree. Yeah. And and the same with recruitment audits or audits in general. I think that those are valuable educational uh, experiences yes. for companies. Right, like mm -hmm. this is how, what we expect and demand. So that we know our our clients, our customers are getting exactly what we right. what they're paying for, and and, and that absolutely needs like to be Dan in this field. Said, like medical necessity, the, the issue is it. that it it's gone way beyond yes. that, in my opinion, right? And it, it sure can, yeah, no, sure can, and and I think that those are the constraints I think we're feeling, and uh, and I, I think we're all very passionate about this right now. I can I can feel it <laughs> in, the, in the virtual. <laughs> Uh, no, because it is, and I, you know, to April, I think what you were, what you were about to say too, is we all agree this is a necessary process. I think what, um, you know, what I sort of went a little bit dark on and, and maybe, you know, Steve, Steve along with me is those, those situations that we keep hearing about more and more where it becomes a real obstacle. So again, I think we agree that, that the systems check has to be there because there are certainly people, we're all human and there's going to be different, there's going to be a, a wide range of ethics even uh, despite some of these fail safes, there are people committing fraud. There are people, we, yeah. we can blame a, a lot of this on ourselves as a collective, um, you know, but then we, the rest of our conversation is really focused on those pressures that I think put people in a really compromised position. Yes. You know, you've got a, you've got a set of employees, you've got people that, that, that you're paying, that you're, you're trying to make payroll and suddenly you've got a mass exodus of clients for whatever reason, or you lose a school contract or, 
you know, so again, I'm not justifying when people commit fraud, but I certainly understand or I can imagine the level of pressure they're under when they choose to go there. And I don't think that that the insurance parameters, if not constraints, are are completely um, uh, you know, cleared of, of any influence here. I think they're very much involved. Right. So it is a big systems dynamic, and, and I think we've been very uh, politically correct and polite at not placing blame anywhere too harshly. Uh, but as service providers and people that are seeing the the you know the the uh, regulations from the payers, you know we do look at those and, and certainly gripe you know a, a lot more maybe than we should have. But but maybe we should be griping and or conversing with them a little bit more, finding ways to interface with these folks to really. We're still very new to the medical table. I don't know how much they actually know about it. Absolutely, right. yes. that yes. you know that's what yeah. I'm saying. I you know it's not that I completely disagree with you either, <laughs> um, but. I mean, I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen too, you know, at, along with us asking for better rates, like let's educate mm-hmm. on why we need these better rates. You know, what is it that, what makes our field and our service a little different from some of the others that they've worked with before? Sure, sure. And, and like, I can also see the funders, the, the predicament that the funder is in when you have that company, I'm not naming companies at this point, but yeah. like uh, in, in South <laughs> Carolina that committed millions of dollars in fraud, double billing, like all of this stuff. And then you have almost the entire state of Florida where they put in the, the uh, moratorium on adding ABA companies to Medicaid because of the, the just rampant fraud. Like I, I can understand the pushback. We have put ourselves in this position. Right. Like this. Yeah. Is, and then you hear about the huge needs in those places too. Florida, for example, yeah. huge needs. Yes. You hit the consumers and you actually hit the ground and talk to people. Yep. Oh my God, no, it's so hard to get services here. It's like, wait, how does that, how, how are those two things happening concurrently? That seems impossible. Why, why are you committing fraud? Well, yeah, you're probably right. It goes back to that rate. It goes back to how do you sustain a business at a certain reimbursement rate? And then what does that mean about the value of our service currently? Uh, in the overall, you know, trajectory of it. So yeah, it, it's tough. It, it is really hard, and I don't don't want anybody out there being fraudulent. At the same time, I, I we can empathize, especially more recently as we learn new terrain and and have left our our payer from over the last ten years or get ready to leave them. So yeah, yeah. I think at the end of the day, we just all want what's best for the kids, Absolutely. right? And if, like all the a lot of this stuff is getting excluded, or if like Mike, you mentioned earlier, if people are looking at ways to not pay rather than ways to pay at the end of the day. It's only the kids that they really suffer at yes. the end of the day. Yeah. That, that's challenging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing, you know, as we, you know, talk about quality control and, yes. you know, with our, uh, we just fit, wrapped up our KPI course and we yes. had a really, um, a, a neat group of, uh, BCBAs of business. Well, there weren't all BCBAs, but ABA business owners and, um, people in the leadership um, of ABA companies, but talking about like, how do we measure quality? And, you know, what does it boil down to, right? And how can we measure quality? And you can't measure quality without taking into consideration the actual kids that you're providing services for, right? right? And, um, but of course there's all the other parameters too, but yeah, it's all about the kids. It really is about the families, about the individuals that we're providing services for, um, because that's why we're here. And And I mean, we've talked to hundreds of BCBAs, right? And and like no one, no one wakes up in the morning and says, okay, let's, let's see how I can commit some fraud, right? Like this is not like, it's, (laughs) it's, I want to help, right? Like I, can you help me help people? That's all I want to do. And it's just this unfortunate incentive system that we find ourselves in 
um yeah 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 well i mean on that note um i you know i want to my you know be respectful yes. of your time and we really so thankful um for you coming on today and having this conversation and we're really excited about working you know having an ongoing uh relationship working relationship with you guys and and collaborating on some 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 of the stuff right yeah um but before we leave do, any closing remarks from either one of you Whew, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> I like what Steve was talking about. I think that um, for everybody out there in the field that wakes up every day to, to, to go try and help families and kids, uh, just, you know, yeah, this is a hard terrain. I just I want to send encouragement out to everybody that does the work we do and, um, you know, try to stay as honest and, and keep your ethic about you. And, uh, you know, certainly reach out to us, to people like uh, Stephen and April, I think there's a, a greater community that needs to come together uh, if we're going to do something like, you know, create a lobby to raise rates, yeah. which is probably what would be necessary. Yeah. Working on it. Uh, Working on we got to take, <laughs> take care of each other, right? We got to yeah. take care of each other. We, you know, the idea we had a, uh, just really quickly, we had a, an employer recently come in with the, the structure in their employment and say, you know, when I'm facing the idea of being uh, an RBT, which is a job I love. But having more consistent uh, pay and predictable pay, if I go flip burgers, you know, that's a really tough task for me. And I, I just really want to encourage people out there that if you have a heart to do this work, stay at it, stay patient. Uh, there are a lot of people who are trying to improve uh, a lot of these definitions to make them more concrete and to make sure that this is a viable and, and uh, regarded as a valuable service because we really feel it is. So it's, it's tough to face these constraints, but I think it's good to have these conversations because it helps a lot of us um, rise above it. So, yeah, stay positive out there. <laughs> Dan? Uh, I'll, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, my, the previous thing I said about, you know, just at the end of the day, doing it for the kids, yeah. I'll let that yeah. be my yeah. exit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Do it for the kids, do it for the families. This is, you know, this is a heart-wrenching work. This is heart work for sure. So uh, encouragement to everybody out there who's who's trying to figure this out and Certainly let us know as you find answers. <laughs> Absolutely. I know that's about, you know, once we get through, what are all the the problems and challenges here? Um, we'll have to start working on how do we yeah. change? How do, yeah. What are our yeah. next steps yeah. moving forward? Please involve I mean, I guess us in the, that. We were first to sign up on that list if we're, we're just sign us up quickly. Absolutely. You're, all, what, on, you're, you're on the list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I guess the, the final word I will say, sorry, I, I will take one yeah. thing, is that Mike, I know Mike believes this, and I believe this as well. The best work, the most impactful change I've done is over the last eight years of my service. I mean, I think the families, I mean, Mike literally just sent me a uh, an email of a family that the kid has been diagnosed with all sorts of eating stuff and now ate steak with the family. And um, so the most impactful work that I've done has been over the last 10 years where I haven't been scrutinized over, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Not to say that people shouldn't be, but on the other end, that I've led to the most impactful change, and I've been in this field almost 20 years. Yeah. Systems checks, not necessarily over scrutiny. We're okay with systems checks. We're okay with the the creativity. Back to the the case that Dan is uh, alluding to. Um, I don't know if you'd believe it or not, but we never put the demand on the child to eat during programming. This was all achieved through collateral means, right? Knowing that if I put that on some report, somebody's going to say, what are you kidding? You're not working directly on the eating part in session? No, because I, I thought that was too much of a pressure. Yeah. In fact, I think it was there was overpressure in that sense, and the child was withdrawing from it. So we went about it in a roundabout way and very happy to say it succeeded. And I wonder what 
challenges I would have faced with any of the more stringent pair as far as medical necessity because the child wasn't underweight or malnourished. It was the parents saying they just don't eat anything but this, that, or the other. You know, okay, well, that's a quality of life. If you're going to a restaurant, if you're sitting at the dinner table, that's an important piece in terms of how you're going to connect with your environment. So we were allowed to do that. Again, I can't help but wonder what constraints I might have faced right. uh, given our current situation. So Right, and, the, and that's, our, that's our real, I mean, that's that sounds like a, a good picture of a lot of the families that we provide services yeah. for, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That's where we're. Well, thank you, so thank you guys yeah, again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right. And, Can't wait till uh, next time. We hope to have you on ABA. Absolutely. On so Sounds great. Connect, and we'll okay. link for, for those of you guys listening, we'll link, um, we'll put a link in there yes, to, to the ABA podcast. And, yes. um, Listen to it. It's awesome. Yeah, great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully it was helpful. If you would like to gain access to this entire video and actually our entire library of videos, please join our ABA Business Leaders membership. You can find that at www.3pisquare.com.